Today's scripture reading is going to be from the book of Acts, chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 1 and going to verse 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has, and here he has authority from the priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Grant. Good morning, family. Really good to see everybody here this morning. Um, I failed to say this in our first worship gathering, but I just wanted to express my appreciation publicly for the ladies who were involved with planning and facilitating our ladies gathering. Yesterday, I heard just fantastic uh, life-giving responses from that time. So we just give them a round of applause publicly. Also, last week in our narrative, we met um, a man from Ethiopia. He was the treasury uh, secretary, and he heard the gospel. He realized Jesus was his rescuing king. And of the person who shared the gospel with him, he's like, hey, what's preventing me from being baptized as a follower of Jesus? I want into the family. And the answer in the text was, well, nothing. And so we asked that question of you last week and realized that the answer is true for you as well, because Jesus has done all the work necessary for you to be adopted and rescued into the family. There's no work for you to do. It's just a matter of the placement of your faith um, your faith may, as a rebel is in yourself or your own good works, uh, but the good news of the gospel is uh, faith in Christ is sufficient. He's done all the work for us. You did have one hurdle last week. We didn't have any water here, though, so when we asked the answer, what's preventing you from being baptized? Uh, we didn't have any water in a pool. Well, this week, we removed that hurdle for you. Uh, we, did, we did baptize one person in our first worship gathering and if you're here this morning and you've been realizing as we've journeyed through Acts that you, are, you, you had not yet been in the family, you in fact were a rebel needing rescue from Jesus, and you now believe that he is your rescuing king, we would love to help you take that next step in publicly declaring that faith and celebrating your adoption into the family uh, through baptism. So what's preventing you? Well, nothing because Jesus did all the work, and nothing because we have heated water here this morning in a pool and we can find a change of clothes somewhere, so nothing is preventing you. Let's pray, and we'll get down to work uh, in the text this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for the reminder in your word that we are your needy kids, and you say, blessed are the poor in spirit. And So we just want to recognize and posture ourselves as your kids and recognize that we, in fact, are poor in spirit. We don't have what we need, but you're a good dad. You delight in giving your kids exactly what they need and more. And you don't hold back. And so as your children, we just come to you this morning expectantly with our, our hands open, just like kids would do, saying, Dad, we need and we know you love to give. And so we anticipate receiving from you through your son, Jesus, through the work of your life-giving spirit, and through the beauty of your gospel. I pray that you'd use all of these things to point our hearts and our, our hearts back to you and to fill our needy hands with what we need for today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this is our final week in our journey through the first third of Acts, and our series has been entitled Spirit-Empowered. What we've been learning is that we are God's Spirit-Empowered Kids. Uh, our big idea from the text this morning is simply this, spirit-empowered people have stories marked by contrast, but still struggle to believe. God's spirit-empowered people have stories marked by contrast, but still struggle to believe. Let's summarize what we heard Grant read for us, just so we're tracking with the narrative and what our Father wants 
us to hear this morning. The narrative began with the words, but Saul. How many of you played t-ball growing up? Any t-ballers? All right, so this is a t-ball passage, and what I mean by that is, Here's our T, if you will, and here's our baseball, and the baseball's got this big word on it. The word is contrasts, and so as, as we enter this passage and we're ready to kind of swing our bat through it, the author, Luke, is trying to make it obvious to us that this chapter of the story is all about contrast, the contrast induced by the gospel. And just so we're all tracking with that word, we're all on the same page as to what it means. Contrast is a state of being strikingly different, like radically different, totally changed. And what we're going to see is this is a chapter or a story of contrast. We're going to see them one after another, one contrast after another. So it begins, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And the reason Luke began with that little but important word, but, is because he's contrasting Saul with the main character of the previous chapter. His name was Philip. We learned about him last week. And the way that chapter concludes is this. In verse 40 of chapter 8, Philip was preaching good news in every town on his way to Caesarea. That's how we left him off, right? So we could say it this way. Philip was breathing truth and mercy Meanwhile, Saul was breathing threats and murder, right? Our first contrast to kind of kick off, maybe it's our little snowball that's about to roll downhill and turn into a massive snowball of contrast. Wouldn't you like a massive snowball in June in Okinawa? That'd be fantastic. Or there'd be a contrast for you, right? So we first met Saul, what? What was he doing? You remember he was holding jackets for the men who were throwing rocks at Stephen's head. You remember that a couple weeks ago? And what we learned in the text was Saul really enjoyed what was happening to Stephen. He thought Stephen deserved to die that way because of his allegiance to Jesus. It says Saul approved of his execution. He liked it in a bloodthirsty kind of way, and he wanted more of that. He wanted more Christians to die the same way Stephen died. And so a little while later, we learned that Saul went from holding coats to slinging cuffs. Like he lived into his desire. He wanted it to happen. And we saw in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Saul was ravaging the church, going door to door, kicking down doors, dragging off men and women, and making sure they were locked up in prison. So chapter 9 picks up with Saul's story. And what we see is Saul goes to the high priest of Jerusalem, a man with a ton of authority, not just in Jerusalem, but over um, other Jewish communities and cities throughout the region. So Saul goes to this man who's in a position of authority, and he asks for letters to the rulers of the synagogue in Damascus. Here's a, a map just to give you a frame of reference. He's currently in Jerusalem, all the way down south there. And what he's asking for, guys, these papers, he's asking for arrest warrants and extradition papers for the, the Jews who had converted to Christianity and then ran away from Jerusalem because of the persecution. So they scattered region. And he's like, all right, no problem. One city at a time. I'm going to hunt them down and I'm going to extradite them back to Jerusalem and lock them up or kill them uh, like they deserve. So he's headed to Damascus. He's going to serve his warrants, round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. So Saul hits the road. And what you've got to know is this. This is a 
This is a six-day road trip for Saul. Like, you think he's serious about this? You think he hates Jesus? You think he hates followers of Jesus? Six-day road trip to go to Damascus to round people up, and then another six days by foot to get them all back to Jerusalem. Paul hates Jesus, and Paul hates Christians. But as he approaches Damascus, Saul is suddenly blasted by a light from heaven. And he falls to the ground, stunned and overwhelmed, unable to do anything. He's just, he's just in the dirt. And a voice speaks. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord, persecuting me? Who are you? And the voice speaks back to Saul and says, I Saul, you're persecuting me. Now, in this moment for Saul, this is, this is crazy for Saul, because what we have to understand is Saul thought he was doing God's work by persecuting Christians. And now God is showing up in a way that only God can do. Isn't this kind of reminiscent of what you'd hear in the Old Testament with like maybe Moses would have encountered or others? And so, um, man, Saul grew up in Sabbath school. He knew the Torah. He knew all the stories. So what's happening to him has happened before, and it's always God at the center. So he knows it's God. But then God identifies as Jesus. And that's the very thing that Saul hates. Like Jesus was just a man. And I hate him for claiming that he is God or that he's the son of God. I hate that Christians say that Jesus is God himself. And now God speaks from heaven and says, you're persecuting me, Saul, and I am Jesus. Saul also hates it because he was convinced that Jesus was dead the man Jesus was dead. But now the risen Jesus, the living Jesus, is speaking from heaven as God. He's not dead. He's alive. Guys, there's no turning back from this moment. This shatters everything that Saul believed. Everything's shattered now. You, you, don't, you don't turn back and, and keep on pressing with no change in a moment like this. Now, as an aside, I know that we're summarizing, but I just want to say this. You know, how did Jesus speak about the persecution? What did he say to Saul? Who's Saul persecuting? Me. Now, we need to hear this, family. This is very important for us. Saul thought he was persecuting people, and Jesus speaks from heaven and says, Dog, those are my people, and in persecuting them, you're persecuting me. Their pain is my pain. And guys, what you need to be reminded of, we all need to be reminded of us because we all carry some pain. We all experience pain. We all experience loneliness is that your rescuing king is not a distant God. He is present with you and he is present in your pain. Listen, this is very important. Your pain is his pain. That's true at a family level and it's true for you individually as a son or a daughter in the family. Jesus is present with you in your pain and he is gentle and lowly and kind and restorative he is present with you he is near you in your pain the voice from heaven jesus says saul get up i want you to go into the city I'll give you more instructions there. The men with Saul were speechless. They'd heard the voice, but they didn't see, they didn't see any of what Saul saw. So Saul gets up. His eyes are wide open, we read, but he sees nothing. He's blind. And this, this piece of the story is like the height of irony. Here's the, the ruthless bounty hunter who now has to be led by the hand like a little child 
into the city where he intended to assert himself as the dominant male and drag people out and take them to jail. And now he's being led blind and by the hand like a little boy. God rocked his world, brought him down real low. Then Saul goes three days, no sight, no food, no drink. And at this point in the story, we're introduced to Ananias, who we just, we learn is a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus speaks to Ananias the same way he spoke to Saul without the light. He didn't, he just, he spoke gently to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go to Judas's house. And in case you don't know the address, here it is. He lives on Straight Street. And just so you know that um, some of you maybe come from a skeptical background, you're like the Bible makes up details to tell a story, you can still go to Damascus. And well, it may be kind of, I don't know if this part of the city has been affected a whole lot, but um, up until several years ago anyway, you could still go to Damascus and you could still walk yourself right down Straight Street. Judas's house is probably no longer standing. There is a marker there where scholars or people think Judas's house was, so you can still go to that place where they, they think this happened, okay? But straight street in Damascus. Um, Ananias, I want you to go there. There's a dude named Saul. He's praying because that's all he can do with it. He is, I brought him down low. That's all he's got. He's just praying. He's praying. He's seen a vision. He knows that you're coming, and he knows that you're coming to restore his sight. And Ananias responds in faith and says, Jesus, I sing songs every Sunday that say, take my life and let it be like whatever you want for me. I'll go. I'm going right now. Watch me go to, he's like, Jesus, no, no, I'm not going to Judas' house. I've heard about Saul. Uh, he, 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 he worked a whole bunch of evil in Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, Jesus, if you're not aware, he has my arrest warrant in his briefcase and he's got my extradition papers. Like he tends, intends to take me out of here and lock me up. So Jesus, I love you, but I didn't mean I'd go anywhere you want me to go. Like anywhere but Judas' house. Jesus says, Ananias, you're going to go, son. You're going to go. Um, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry the gospel before Gentiles, kings, and, and my people, children of Israel. And he's going to suffer a lot for my name. It, it's okay. It's part of my plan. Trust me, you're going to go. So Ananias obeys. He, he, he does what Jesus asks. He goes to Judas' house. He lays his hands on Saul. Saul receives the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit brings him to life and uh, gives him faith and gives him spiritual eyes to see. And at the same time that his eyes are being opened to the truth of who God is and who he is and why he's created, we see it happen physically too, where something like scales fall from his eyes, nasty as part of the story, like serious case of morning crusties, like they're all just falling off of his eyes right now. He can see. And then Saul is baptized, and then he kills a meal. I love that Luke goes to that detail in the story, right? Because Saul has gone at least 72 hours, no sight. Uh, no food, no drink, and the way we're supposed to understand it is probably no sleep either. Guys, this is how good your father is, okay? Check this out. He brings Saul to life spiritually. He gives him the gift of the Spirit, and then what does he say to Saul? Now start memorizing Bible verses, go outside and share the gospel, be a really good Christian. What does the father do? He gives Saul a really yummy meal, and he has him take a nap. Guys, sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do in our father's family is take a nap and eat a meal. And yes, your father cares about those details and cares about your well-being that much. It's in the Bible. It's in the story. 
first thing he has Saul do. So he kills a meal, gets some rest. He stays with the disciples in Damascus for a season. Uh, some scholars believe it's probably about three years, but it was a long period of time. He's in Damascus. He preaches Jesus as the son of God in the synagogue, so very publicly. People are amazed because they're like, wait, this is a guy who was causing havoc for Christians in Jerusalem, and he came to Damascus for the same reason. What gives? This makes no sense. My mind is blown. I don't have a category for this. Saul gained strength. Um, Saul was a good communicator and a very smart man, and he'd been well-educated. So we read here that he spent his time proving that Jesus was the Messiah. So guarantee what he was doing in, the, in these synagogues for these Jewish people was going right back to the Torah, right back to the writings of the prophets, to the law, and probably taking all of these passages and pointing them all to Jesus. Like, look, he's the promised one. And he did it over and over again. And it was just confounding them. They hated it. And so they try to kill him. And Paul, Saul does the heroic thing. He's lowered in a basket over the wall and escapes the city, right? So he doesn't have to die. Um, so he escapes the city. They send him back to Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem and he tries joining the disciples there. And so when we see tried joining, we're meant to understand that's he tried over and over again. Um, and they're like, it ain't happening, baby. Like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, not happening. You're not joining. So uh, he visited them multiple times. It'd be like somebody visiting Pillar two or three times. It'd be like, eh. Try Coza. Try Coza. So I'll go to, go to Coza. Go somewhere else. Go to Keystone. Go to Calvary. But uh, we don't believe you. You're not, you're not hanging with us. So they don't let him into the community until this guy Barnabas vouches for him. And they're like, he said, guys, it's for real, baby. Like this, this happened. The spirit has given Saul. He is not the same man. He has a new heart. He loves Jesus. He loves Jesus' people. And he wants to pour his life out for, the, for Jesus' name and for the good of others. For real. Now Saul's preaching in Jerusalem, and the Hellenist Jews want to kill him. Now, now the story's as crazy as it's going to get, because these are the very same people that Saul was holding jackets for when they executed Stephen publicly, right? And now he's preaching Jesus publicly, and they want to execute him. It's completely switched. The contrast is crazy. So the Christians in Jerusalem send Saul away to Caesarea, and then on to Tarshish, just one more map for you so that you can be tracking with the geography, right? So he'd been up in Damascus, back to Jerusalem. They sent him over to Caesarea, probably saw Philip. Remember, that's where we left Philip last week. He bought a house, had four daughters, spent like 20 years there. So Philip's there. And then he got on a boat and went back to his birthplace to Tarshish, probably to get some rest um, and get ready for what God had in store through him. Uh, for him. And so then we read that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and Samaria had peace. So the regions of the area, the church finally knew peace. It was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they multiplied. More and more rebels were being rescued and adopted into the family. So what's our big idea from the passage again? Simply this, guys. Spirit-empowered people have stories marked by contrast, but we still struggle to believe. Now remember, contrast as a word, what we're talking about is those, those things that are strikingly different in a story or in a life. So let me just ask you, as we kind of, as we read the passage and then we summarized, what are some of the striking differences that you saw? What'd you see? Here, here's what I saw. 
Chapter one opens with Saul breathing threats and murder, and he's immediately contrasted with Philip, who was breathing truth and mercy. And then the next thing we see, Saul wants to kill Christians, but people want to kill Saul later on in the story now because he himself is a Christian. So the persecutor becomes the persecuted. That's a contrast. The chapter opens with the church not having any peace. It's being torn down by Saul. We get to the end of the narrative. The church now knows peace, and it's being built up, and more and more members are being added to the family. More contrast. Uh, One of my favorite pieces of contrast, I love this. It's in verses 2 to 3. Check out the way that Luke writes about this. It says that Saul is hunting for anyone found belonging to what? The way. So that was a name that had been adopted by early followers of Jesus, both individually and as a family, like the way. You've probably heard of churches with that name, yeah? In different communities. So there it is. It's biblical, right? It's good. Uh, historically, Christians would have been known in town as, the, as those who were followers of the way. And you're like, where does that come from? We know where that comes from. What does that remind you of in Jesus' own teaching? Yeah, right? Like right out of Jesus' mouth. I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am followers of the way. Now notice in verse 3 then, how does Luke start out describing Saul's journey? What's he say? On whose way? His way. Man, that's like perfect summary of our rebel lives before Jesus. You were living on your way. Your way. Just going on your way. Guys, your way. Autonomy, independence no need for a creator, your way. And look at how Luke writes about Saul's life. He's hunting down those who belong to the way while he's going on his own way. But then later in the narrative, Saul is rescued out of his way and becomes a member of the way. Guys, that is every person's gospel story right there. It's beautiful. More contrast, early on, Saul is arresting Christians, killing them. Later in the story, Christians help Saul escape arrest and death. In the middle of the story, we see Saul is blind. Later, his sight is restored. Another contrast. More contrast, Saul was opposed to the work of the Spirit, only later in the story to actually receive the Spirit and be empowered by him for his work. Another contrast, Saul was in Jerusalem causing havoc against followers of Jesus, but now he's in Damascus and then in Jerusalem, and what's he doing? Preaching Jesus as the hero. So he goes from havoc for those who follow Jesus to preaching Jesus as the hero. More contrast. And then one more, Saul despised anyone baptized in Jesus' name. What happens in this story? He comes to be baptized in Jesus' name. The the entire narrative is one long story of contrast, just one after another. And maybe my favorite, the most beautiful, comes in the middle, verses 15 and 16. Check this out. Where Jesus says to Ananias, listen, Ananias, I know you're afraid to go see Saul. I got it. I get it. I, I understand why you would be afraid. But listen, Saul's a chosen instrument of mine. Now, that sounds a little impersonal for you. Uh, like, why would God talk about his kids? Is like, there's chosen tool. Like, is that all we are? Are we just objects? Um, the translation's kind of weak. They probably could do a better job in carrying that over into English. Uh, the word chosen implies just a deep personal relationship, like a father to a son. Like, that's my kid. Um, 
I love him deeply. And instrument just meaning he's my kid with a special mission. I've got a special purpose for him. So I've got all these adopted kids. I love them. It's personal. Um, they all have a part in this mission. But my boy Saul here, like, he's got a really special mission that I've handpicked for him, right? And here it is. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Um, and then all that detail plays out in Acts. And I'm going to show my boy. I'm going to show Saul how how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. So guys, how's that for gospel-induced contrast into a life story? Listen, this is Jesus saying, Saul was my enemy, he was cursing my name, and he made my family suffer. And now Jesus is saying, now Saul is my ally, he's going to be carrying my name, and he will suffer gladly for my name and the good of others. You see the contrast goes from enemy to ally, cursing to carrying, causing suffering to actually willingly and gladly receiving suffering for the sake of Jesus and his family. That's insane contrast. So is it any surprise then that Saul, whose name would later be changed to Paul, would write personal lines like this one that we find in Ephesians where he says, I was dead in sin. And then what's he say? But God, right? Contrast. I was dead But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead, he made me alive. More contrast. He made me alive together with Jesus. Guys, you know what Saul knew? Saul knew that his father is the contrast creator Saul knew that spirit-empowered kids' stories come to be marked by contrast. That's the beauty of the gospel, right? Death to life, contrast, blind to sight, right? In our rebellion, we don't see life for what it really is. We think we do. We don't see our hearts for what they are, and we don't see God for who he is. As God's kids, he gives us the gift of the Spirit, just like Saul, something like scales fall off the eyes of our heart, and for the first time, For the first time, we see God for who he is. Not only my creator, but my rescuer and my dad. We see Jesus for who he is, my necessary rescuing king who does all the work to rescue me and the family. We see the spirit for who he is, absolutely essential to my life. I have nothing apart from the gift of the spirit. And we see ourselves for who we are, rebels rescued into the father's family as sons and daughters. Death to life, blindness to sight. And even though all of that is true, family, here's where we're going with this. We still struggle to believe. We know the contrast is true. We see the contrast. We read about it. We've experienced some of it. But our hearts still doubt and disbelieve. You're like, wait, John, I don't know about all that. Like, where do you see that in the narrative? Where do you see doubt and disbelief? Why would you suggest we doubt? Well, look at verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And what? They were all afraid of him. Why? They did not believe that he was a disciple. And you're like, they're not doubting God, John. It just says they're disbelieving Saul. But hang with me for a second. The problem isn't that they were disbelieving Saul's word. I mean, they were. I I get it. That's obvious. That's the plain meaning of the text. But there is a deeper reason here behind their disbelief. The problem isn't that they were disbelieving Saul's word. 
The problem is that they were disbelieving the Spirit's work. They're like, no, the contrast is too unlikely. Like, I got it. My dad is the contrast creator. He pours out his spirit, and he writes stories of contrast for everybody adopted in the family. God, I got contrast in my own life. Contrast is beautiful. Saul, it's not happening. There's no way. It's too unlikely. I mean, you know what they're thinking about Saul, right? Double agent, undercover, government employee. Like, he's just being paid to say he's a Christian, but he really exists among us to destroy us and to lock us up. Guarantee that's what they're thinking. See, Christians have struggled with conspiracy theories for generations. It's not new to our generation, so be gentle and humble and kind. This is like the original conspiracy theory in the life of the church. Saul's not a Christian. Saul's a government agent. He's got a paycheck. He's done his DTS. He's here in Jerusalem like he's just working to arrest us, right? Arrest us. They didn't believe. They bought into the conspiracy that there's no way this was true. Too unlikely. But let me ask you a question. Throughout the narrative, as we've explored Acts, was the Spirit present in power for these people? Was He present in power? Yes. Was He working in their lives? Yes. Was the Spirit writing stories marked by contrast? Yes. Is the Spirit still present with the same power, family? Yes. Is He still working in our family in the same way He worked then? Is He working? Yes. Is the Spirit still writing stories marked with contrast? Yes. And this is why we need people like Barnabas. He doesn't get a real big shout out, but see how he features in this story? What's Barnabas do or what's he say? He's like, yo, fam, did you forget already? Like, did you forget your story? Like, have you forgotten what the Spirit's already done in your life and in our lives collectively? And he points them back and he vouches for Paul. He's like, this is for real, baby. Like, Saul, he is not the same guy. His heart's totally different. He loves Jesus. He loves the gospel. He's already suffered and he, he's willing to suffer gladly for Jesus' fame and for the good of our family. Barnabas isn't just vouching for Paul. Barnabas is vouching for the ongoing work of the Spirit. He's not just backing up Saul's word. Barnabas is backing up the Spirit's work. And I know we've got some Barnabases in the family, and I love you. And you guys probably, um, you're not named Barnabas, but um, you have a beautiful gift from the Spirit, and it's the gift of faith. And with that gift, you step into our lives, the majority of us who tend to have a weaker faith that forget that the Spirit is a contrast-writing God who's reshaping our lives. And you gently point us back to our Father. And you gently restore our confidence. And you gently remind us. And you vouch for guys like Saul. Not because Saul's word matters so much, but because the Spirit's work is that powerful. So thank you for the role that you play in our family's life. I'm so grateful for you um, and the gifts that Jesus has given you for our good. So let me ask you this question, a couple questions. If we agree that the Spirit is still present in power, we agree that the Spirit is still working, 
we agree that the Spirit is still writing, still creating these contrasts. Let me ask you this. What unlikely contrast would you love to see but would have a hard time believing? I want you to think of the most unlikely. Now, to be faithful kind of to the intent of the text and to make sure our application stays aligned with the intent of the text, let's kind of use some concentric circles to build our way out. So we'll start with the most obvious application, and that is this is a story of a rebel being rescued into the family. So somebody who hated Jesus is now passionate for Jesus and pouring his light out. So let's, let's start there. Who in your family, who in your neighborhood, who at your workplace would you look at, you already, you have their name in your mind, and it's like, that is the least likely person to ever believe the gospel. There's no way they will ever believe. There's no way they would be in the Father's family. There's no way they would confess allegiance to Jesus. Who is that person for you? Okay, now let's go out to the next concentric circle. What is the least likely wound to be restored in your life? You bear wounds because of the rebellion of other people, and they have inflicted those wounds on you. But the gospel would also tell us the truth about ourselves, that in our rebellion and with our rebel tendencies, we have also wounded other people. So what wounds currently exist that we would love to see healed and restored, but we just wouldn't believe it if you were telling me it's going to happen? What's the least likely wound? What about rebel tendencies? Maybe next circle out. You were a rebel. You're now a son. You're now a daughter. But you know your heart. You know deep down, deeply rooted, there are some rebel ways. There are some rebel tendencies that flare up every once in a while. You now believe you're going to take those to the grave. What is the least likely rebel tendency to be rooted out of your heart and to be replaced with just a beautiful trust in who Jesus is and running to Jesus for the things your heart craves instead of running to that person or to that thing? What about relationships? We can go out another circle. What relationship is least likely to be restored? We all know broken relationship. As you think through those broken relationships, which ones come to mind when you think of, man, I would, I would love to see restoration here. There's no way. There's just no way. What are these least likely things? Relationships, rebel tendencies, rebels, what are they? Who are they? Earlier this week, um, so I'm a baseball fan. I don't use a lot of baseball examples, but here's one, okay? Here's one. There's a young man by the name of Luke Williams. He's 24 years old. It was his first real appearance in the big leagues. And he stepped in in the bottom of the ninth. So for those of you who are not baseball people, that's the end of the game, okay? End of the game. And his team was down. They needed two runs Two people to go all the way around bases to touch on a plate, okay? <laughs> to win the game, just two. But they depleted the roster. Everybody else had had their shot in the game. He was like the last able-bodied person with a pulse who, could, who qualified to step up and swing a bat. But everybody on the team and everybody in the stadium knew he was the least likely person to help them win. Not going to happen. And as a result, the entire stadium was just hushed and quiet. So he went down two strikes, okay? Just proving, see? Least likely, game's over. Like, why would we even pitch to this guy? Like, let's just concede the game and go home. And then he gets a hanging slider, a pitch, a ball thrown across the plate, and he, boom, knocks it out over the left field wall, and the place goes nuts. Now, you're wondering who the cat is on the right, right? That's his little brother, Ike. 
So I kind of lied. You know how everybody in the stadium was disbelieving? Not this kid. This kid believed from day one. You can see it on his face. Um, that, you know how the Bible talks about when your faith becomes sight? That's what that look is. That's hope vindicated by reality. Like, that's such a biblical picture right there. It's beautiful. His faith in his brother became sight, and that's what your face is going to look like when you see Jesus, if your faith, faith is in him, right? That's faith becomes sight. And that's his dad. Based on his dad's expression, that's more like relief. And like, oh my goodness, phew, he did it. I'm proud of you, but man, I didn't think that was going to happen, right? So two totally different emotion sets. Very different. But guys, the place erupted. It went from complete disbelief to, oh my goodness, contrast, we won. So here's a question for you. When did God's family stop believing in walk-off wins? When did we, Pillar, as a family, God's spirit-empowered kids, stop believing in walk-off wins? When did we start believing the narrative of unlikely or least likely more than we actually believe the narrative that our dad's been telling us and showing us all along that I am the contrast creator and I, I radically change stories? When did we become the silent stadium? When did you become the silent spectator that just thought, why are we even pitching to this kid? The game's over, let's just go home. So last week I shared a couple journal entries. You probably thought that was weird. And you're like, John should really get a counselor. Um, I have a counselor. Yeah. So you don't have to be my counselor. So that gives me freedom to share one more entry, okay? Um, but I promise I won't make this a habit. This is a little too personal and uncomfortable for some of you, so uh, I won't make it a habit. So what I did is as I was spending time in the story this week, I said, I wrote uh, to, to God, my father, and I, I, I write dad. I think Jesus gives me permission to do that when he uses words like Abba. That's a very intimate, personal name for the father. So I said, Dad, I see what the narrative says. Now, what are you saying to me specifically as your son? And so um, I just take the liberty to write down what I feel my father is speaking to me through the Spirit. And I wrote down, Son, you're really not different from these members of your family at all. You disbelieve too. They disbelieved that I would rescue and adopt someone like Saul. In their disbelief, they weren't doubting Saul as much as they were doubting me. So what do you disbelieve, son? In your disbelief, who are you actually doubting? Son, you're doubting me. So then my reply, Dad, you're right. Like, I, I am a doubter. I doubt certain friends will ever believe. I doubt my little brother. <laughs> I doubt. I have bought into the narrative that he's least likely in the family. He's unlikely that my dad doesn't write contrast. I doubt certain relationships will ever be fully reconciled and restored. I, I have rebel tendencies that remain so deeply rooted. I'm like, I'm going to carry those to the grave. It'll never change. And so I just wrote, Dad, I'm realizing in my disbelief, I'm actually doubting you power of your gospel and the work of your spirit. 
Notice how the chapter concludes the final verse. He says, walking in the fear of the Lord. And then what? Walking in what? Comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know what the comfort of the Holy Spirit is? It's the voice that is louder than the narrative of unlikely, least likely. And it's the voice that says, I am the contrast creating God. Why are you doubting? These are the stories I write. Like Saul's story is insane, but it's a normal story for my family. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. Fam, you know how our family's going to multiply? And I don't mean through PCS, though. If you're PCSing here, fantastic. You're more than welcome to become a part of our family. I want us to multiply through people like Saul. Men and women, boys and girls who PCS or immigrate or are born here in Okinawa who are the least likely candidates to ever be a part of our family. You know how we're going to multiply in that way? Only when we're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, where our confidence is more deeply rooted in the contrast creating Father and contrast writing Spirit than it is in the narrative of least likely, unlikely. That's how. And my prayer is, Jesus, make this true for us and our family. So let's pray that. Let's pray that together. Jesus, we confess we're doubting kids. Please remind us, restore us, move our confidence back to you from ourselves. Father, for your fame and for the good of others. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.